Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everybody, and welcome to the History of England, episode 295, Marvellous Good Order. Marriage and succession, as you can see, was an early Elizabethan obsession, a real brain teaser. And it was complicated by the existence of parallel lives, rival queens. While Elizabeth was trying to stop everyone talking about her personal business and probably feeling reasonably strongly against the idea of marriage, her thoroughly attractive and successful neighbour was determined to find herself a husband. By the way, we are going to be talking quite a bit about Mary Queen of Scots this week. If you want to know more about Mary's life in greater detail, it just so happens we have reached Mary in the history of Scotland, available to members, and there is a suite of five episodes of her life. So maybe this is the moment when you decide to take the plunge and sign up for membership. If it is, then hive to thehistoryofengland.co.uk or indeed to the new sister site, thehistoryofscotland.co.uk, which is there just to make the point that Scotland is not part of England, should anyone need reminding. Finding a husband was not purely a matter for Mary, as it happens, but also for Elizabeth, or at least the English felt they should be consulted, which feels all wrong. But in the diplomatic to and fro, in the continuing discussion about ratifying the Treaty of Edinburgh, about Mary's rights to the English succession, England had leverage. If she wanted to be recognised as Elizabeth's heir, she really had to make sure that her choice of husband was acceptable. Mary resented having to consult the English, considering it suggested an inferior status that she completely denied. For the moment, though, she went along with it. But there was chafing, ladies and gentlemen, chafing worse than after a long walk in wet trousers. Part of the reason for said chafing was the labyrinthine, Byzantine, impenetrable diplomacy of Elizabeth at this point. 
Patiently, Mary asked Elizabeth, Well then, okay then, if you want me to marry your choice, who is your choice? In reply, there was for a long time merely the crackle of static. And when the radio sparked into life again, the answer made Mary's jaw hit the floor and her fury hit the roof. Because the answer was Dudley. Well, I never did. First of all, this was suggesting Mary marry her cousin's cast-off. And secondly, Dudley's family was hardly the grandest, as we've heard, and a record of two traitors in the last three generations was pretty unbeatable. Dudley, by the way, was generally a Mary supporter, as it happens, whereas Cecil was dead set against Mary being Elizabeth's heir, but Dudley was in favour. But he didn't want to marry her. Not that he really had a choice. If Elizabeth told him to marry Mary, he would have to do his duty. For the moment, Mary stuck with the diplomatic discussions, but she also started looking on her own account, fed up with this business of waiting on the English. And anyway, she needn't have worried about dudders. Elizabeth rather unsurprisingly changed her mind. She'd had this sort of half-conscious image of a ménage à trois, with Mary and Dudley living in London, three of them hanging out and chilling together. And she realised this was never going to happen, and that she didn't want to let her paramour out of her sight. So, Dudley was whipped off the table. Not literally, obviously. Sadly, Mary was struggling to find herself an international husband. The Guise family tried to help to find somebody to some degree, but Catherine de' Medici relentlessly blocked any such initiative. But then, into town rode Matthew Stuart, the Earl of Lennox, and his son, Henry, Lord Darnley. Lennox had been skulking in England after supporting the losing side in the wars of the rough wooing. Since many years had now passed, he fancied setting up shop again in his homelands and asked Elizabeth leave to leave, and asked Mary for leave to arrive. Both said, yeah, sure. Cecil and Elizabeth would later stab themselves with small pins for doing this, and I will explain why in just a sec if you'll hang on a moment. Well, Mary was smitten with Lennox's son Darnley, and she has been roundly criticised as a result with the tag of romantic emotional fool, given how Darnley turned out. But hang on just a moment here. Darnley was clever enough to hide his dastardly character for a while at least, and he was indeed a bit of a catch physically, a rather beautiful youth with apparently girlishly good looks. But, most importantly to Mary, he was also a good catch in the dynastic game. Darnley came fitted with English royal blood through his mum, Margaret Douglas, the daughter of Margaret Tudor, Queen of Scotland. And so, any children from a marriage between Mary and Darnley would have an even more supersonic claim to the English throne should Elizabeth turn out to die sprogless. And if evidence is needed that Mary had won a trick here, think of Cecil and Elizabeth and those small pins. However, in most ways, Darnley turned out to be a complete stinker. He was arrogant and managed to wind up most of the lords of the council. He was constantly drunk. As far as Mary was concerned, as soon as he was married, he started throwing his weight around, demanding to be made her equal, and indeed demanding that as a man, he should be the most important of the two, and all should defer to him. So here we have evidence of what worried Elizabeth about marriage. 
that as soon as she married, she'd lose her independence. Now, as it happens, Mary proved pretty ruthless with Darnley, going back on a promise and refusing to award him the crown matrimonial, as it was called, which would have made him equal king and queen. But Darnley's Catholicism, his anti-English attitude, contributed to isolation for the likes of Murray and Argyll, so much so that in 1556 they rebelled. Well, Mary called a muster, strapped on her pistols and steel cap, and set off after them in what became known as the Chase About Raid. The result was ignominious defeat for Murray, and he fled to England. Mary seemed on top of the world, unassailable. In fact, as we'll see, all that she'd managed to do is climb to the top of the Helter Skelter. Instability, which Mary had done so well to manage so far, had, through her marriage and Darnley's actions, re-entered Scottish politics. Meanwhile, Murray arrived at the English court. Maybe he was expecting soft kisses, sympathy and a hot toddy. If so, the Queen was to disappoint him. As far as Elizabeth was concerned, rebellion against an anointed monarch was very different to rebellion against a regent, as in Mary of Guise. She roasted Murray over the open fire of her tongue. However, that is not to say Murray was banished. Murray was still a friend to the English, and Cecil knew it at least, and he was allowed to stay. Maybe then the success of the chase about raid went to Mary's head. Because in 1566, she did make some mistakes. Along with Darnley, she appeared to begin to abandon the policy of religious toleration and conciliation that she'd followed so carefully since her return, and started to favour Catholicism. It wasn't much, just her own personal behaviour and favours, but along with Darnley's hideous behaviour and Murray's ejection from Scotland, it fed factionalism and fear of a Catholic revival and Protestant persecution. And to add to it, she revived her imperial ambitions. In the full glare of a public banquet, she declared that there was no other Queen of England but herself. From England, came the sound of egg-laying. Cecil's fears were all confirmed. In all of what happens, it is also necessary to include in the concoction the spice of the desire for power of the lords around Mary. Argyll, Maitland, Bothwell, these were ambitious and ruthless men. Although Mary had initially managed them with great success, she faced the same attitude that Darnley displayed towards her. Women, even monarchs, were to be subject to the advice and guidance of men. It's not possible to know quite how much this drove the Lord's actions. Mary used the dignity and language of majesty reasonably well and insisted on her due. And as long as she followed the Lord's advice and managed factions effectively, the issue of gender was put to one side. But when she made a misstep, the inherent factionalism and prejudices emerged and the Tower of State became a wobbly bunch of Jenga blocks. And so we get the remarkable coup mixed up with the murder of the Queen's well-dressed and musical personal secretary, David Rizzio. A faction of Scottish lords, Morton, Maitland and Murray from a distance, among them, tweaked Darnley's vanity, stirring his jealousy that maybe David Rizzio was more than just a secretary. Maybe there were peccadilloes going on here. And anyway... Look, she's refused your right to be driving the bus of state as the man of the house. Who's wearing the trousers here? Assert yourself, man. 
So, Darnley joined a plot to bring Mary into line. He and a posse of men burst into the Queen's apartment and stabbed Rizzio to death in front of her. It was a vicious and extraordinary act. And yet, within weeks, Mary had turned it all around again. She persuaded Darnley to betray his fellow conspirators and flee with her to Dunbar. There, she joined with her supporters, Bothwell, and reinstated the Huntley family who had raised an army for her. Mary entered Edinburgh in triumph. She held Morton responsible as the principal of the rebellion, and he fled. Once again, Mary appeared supreme, and the birth of a son, James, seemed to underline her triumph. But the edifice that supported her was now increasingly shaky. Who could she trust now after all these rebellions? She was forced to rehabilitate the rebels of the chaseabout raid, Murray and Argyle, which emphasised her weakness. And she recognised her own vulnerability and rode back from her support for Catholicism and imperial ambition. But the genie of factionism was out of the bottle. Darnley was a marked man for his betrayal of the rebels, and Mary's prestige had suffered. She appeared an unassailable model of majesty no longer. The image of Mary Queen of Scots dangling a healthy heir on her knee could not but make the questions of the succession more urgent at Elizabeth's third parliament of 1566-7. And, rightly or wrongly, I thought it might be a good moment in the interest of variety to slip in a bit about parliament here, just so you know where the development of the mother of all parliaments has got to. Now, we don't use the dirty D word here, democracy, that is. First of all, these qualifications meant that Parliament as a whole was directly elected by a small part of the population. And it was a commonly held belief that decision-makers should only be drawn from folks who had a stake in the country, in inverted commas, i.e. they were property holders. However, they would argue that they represented the interests of all their country. And you know, you can be cynical and all that and talk about vested interests. But the Elizabethan age will see, for example, the development of Europe's first state-funded poor relief system. So moderate your cynicism a bit. However, there's no doubt that it was the propertied who held all the power and put their interests first and did what they thought was best for the rest of us, whether or not the rest of us agreed. But in here, of course, is that very critical and very poorly understood principle of representation. During the fascinating constitutional process that was Brexit, there was a poll wherein people were asked if MPs should do exactly what their constituents told them to do or should represent their best interests according to that MP's best belief. Only 17% selected the correct answer which is, of course, that MPs are there to represent their constituents' best interests in their own view. After all, I don't know about you, but I change my mind constantly on exactly what I want my MP to do, so is the other approach even possible? There are interesting debates about direct democracy now, I think it's called, but I believe there are just two states who have actually got close to doing it, one of them being Switzerland, I believe. The rest do the representative approach. Anyway... I digress into modern politics, a grievous crime. In the words of Shogun, I cannot live with the shame. Well, maybe I can. Anyway, the 16th century process is very alien to us. It's been pointed out that the process of appointing new MPs for each parliament should be described 
not as an election system, but as a selection process. Basically, very few MPs' seats were contested. The great men of the area, the peers and the town oligarchs, got together over some roast beef, horseradish and wine and had a chat about whose turn it was to represent the town or county this time round. The tenants were then informed on who to vote for, and usually, though not exclusively, they obliged on the buttered side of the bread principle. I feel I've told you this before, but it's worth repeating and not forgetting. After all, repetition is the mother of education. That and a good clit round the air hole. I'm joking, obviously. I accept the days of gum-bleeding teaching are thankfully in the past. Anywho, numbers. That's right, numbers. Society first. The number of noble families is really very titchy. Titled nobility amounted to a group of 57 heads, 57 men. Elizabeth didn't add very many to that count. She was worried about increasing numbers, as you would be with 57. In 1564, she made Robert Dudley Earl of Leicester, and in 1571, Cecil became Baron Burley. But that's about all she did. There was one duke, the Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Howard, by the way. Now, I have just slipped in there that Robert Dudley was created Earl of Leicester, so let's start here calling Dudley Leicester, shall we? It's an annoying thing to keep hold of, and I'll remind you at some point. So then of gentry families, in 1524 there were about 200 knightly families and four to 5,000 esquires and gentlemen. You will remember, of course, that late Tudor England was a thoroughly miserable period if you were a wage labourer. Increasing population, so more competition for work, wages rising slowly if at all, real value of wages eroded by inflation. But if you owned land, well, it was bonanza time. So by 1600, consequently, there were about 500 knightly families and 16,000 esquires and gentlemen. Given that 40 shillings was worth less in 1600 than it was in 1500, the number of qualifying voters also grew from a total population of around 4 million by 1600. Parliament, of course, was not a permanent institution in that it met when the monarch decided it should meet and for as long as she wanted it. In Elizabeth's 44-year-long reign, she held 10 parliaments. Parliament had a few key functions. It had become the only law-making body, and statute law was supreme. So monarchs could issue proclamations, but they lacked the authority of statute law. New legislation was introduced into Parliament by any old member, or indeed by one of the Privy Council, but the link to the old tradition was still strong, that a major stream of new legislation was from the petitions of individual members to their monarch. Hence, I assume, but do not know actually, the surviving tradition of private members' bills. Parliament was also the supreme legal authority, and above all, it authorised taxation. But it by no means just turned up, said, sure, and how much? The dependence of the monarch on Parliament to vote lay subsidies gave Parliament an important lever to ask for favours in return. Those are Parliament's formal roles. These days, of course, Parliament is where politics happens as well, and there has been something of an ongoing war of words about whether or not Parliament had such a role in Elizabethan times. 
Did they have any clout to influence policy? Was that solely in the court and the Privy Council, as we've discussed in a previous episode? Now, G.R. Elton thought not, and parliaments are judged by many, therefore, on the basis of their legislative record. But this probably sells Parliament short. It frequently provided a forum whereby the gentry and burgesses of the House of Commons could make their views known, which they did to the Queen's irritation about marriage, and with some success later in the reign about monopolies. And argument and disagreement took place in debate, and furthermore, the Gen Pub took an interest in the debates. Speeches were often printed, especially the Queen's, and read aloud in pubs and taverns. Parliament was part of the growth in Elizabethan times of a public space, public discussion about issues of the day by the great English public. And then the importance of Parliament was emphasised in practical terms by the amount of money and effort guilds put into lobbying Parliament to get their bill they wanted passed, or indeed to prevent bills getting through that they didn't want passed. And the final piece of evidence to demonstrate that Parliament, although occasional, played a central part in the body politic, was that Cecil planned, influenced and steered its proceedings in every session. Cecil knew both Parliament's usefulness, but also that it could cause trouble if not carefully managed. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. As far as finance was concerned, the monarch was expected to live on customs dues and on income from crown lands. Only when divers' balloons went up, foreign wars or defence, did Parliament feel it should vote for special subsidies. But in fact, this principle had been very much eroded in mid-Tudor years, with subsidies voted for reasons not military. But Elizabeth rather rode back from that, and the idea that the Crown's budget should include defence and be increased every year in line with inflation was not pursued by her. So it is one of the deep ironies of English history that it would take the civil war to really increase government income dramatically, one of the major net results of that struggle for freedom. In the early years of Elizabeth's reign, though, the record on finance was very positive. The coinage was withdrawn and reissued to re-establish the quality of the coin rather than to make a bunch of cash by a debasement. Elizabeth's income came from a number of sources, the sale of crown lands, numbers coming by the way, the sale of crown lands yielded over a quarter of a million up to 1574, which is what? 17,000 quid a year, which is something I suppose, though not much more than you can get for a goodly hill of beans. Income from crown lands gave about £67,000 a year and customs revenue between seventy and £85,000 a year. So that's about 169,000 in a good year. Then there were subsidies. Parliament generally gave when asked. So, with taxation, gross income of maybe about £260,000 a year for the Crown. Meanwhile, 
Good control was kept over spending. Salaries were restricted. Household expenses kept to 40000 a year. Elizabeth spent about one-tenth of what her father had on buildings and built no new palaces. The net result was that Mary's deficit of £300,000 was turned into a surplus of £270,000 by 1563. This was helped by the talents of Sir Thomas Gresham playing the money markets. He was a son of the chap whose name is attached to Gresham's law that bad money drives out good. He also founded the Royal Exchange. I must do more on the lad sometime. A new book has just been published by the redoubtable John Guy. So, watch this space. Then... Along came war and wiped out Elizabeth and Cecil's success, and then some. The little Le Havre holiday jaunt, just a few months long, cost 750,000 quid. Later in the reign, Elizabeth and Cecil's record was not so good. Essentially, they allowed the taxation system to decay somewhat, so assessments stayed at old numbers, avoidance went on like bilio, and the yield of subsidies generally reduced but more of that at some time in the future. Anyway, back to Parliament. In 1566, Elizabeth called a Parliament near the end of the year. The standard format was that the Queen would open her Parliament and close it with a speech to the assembled Lords and Commons in the spacious White Chamber at Westminster. Then the Commons would file out, leaving the Lords to the comfort and grandeur of the White Chamber while they went to St Stephen's Chapel, there to push and shove. The chapel was smaller than the White Chamber and despite the Lords being less than 100 in number, there were over 420 members of the House of Commons. So there were elbows pushing and shoving, rules forbidding spurs and swords so that everyone could squeeze in. Meanwhile, Hierarchy still had its place. The Speaker had a raised chair where the altar used to be, and the members of the Privy Council sat to his right. The cramped conditions made the Commons like a cockpit. Once upon a time, the House of Commons had used the Chapter House, where everyone sat in an arc round the Speaker, which sounds considerably more civilised, but it became too small. In St Stephen's Chapel, people looked at each other, far more encouraging for banter. However, it sounds as though it was a good deal better behaved than the current version, which, as you will know, is like a playground at PMQ's. Prime Minister's question time. In Elizabeth's Parliament, the rules of procedure were becoming established, so you addressed the Speaker, not other MPs. No members were to be named, no one was to interrupt. Joking apart, one observer remarked on the good order in the lower house, where he claimed there was Marvellous good order used in the lower house, with the greatest modesty and temperance of speech. Let's see if the Grawniad reports the next PMQs in the same way next week. Even so, in Elizabeth's reign you might guess that the rules were often broken. Another chronicler noted lots of noise made during an unpopular speech, and that a bill from the Lords was cried away. While the Commons shuffled and squirmed in their cramped conditions, the Lords sat in sumptuous comfort in the White Chamber, the walls hung with tapestries and further decorated by the gorgeous dress of the lay representatives. There's a contemporary picture of the Queen presiding over a session which I have popped onto the website. The Queen sits at the head under her canopy of state with lines of Lords in their ermine stretching away into facing rows. And then the scribes, 
and the Lord Chancellor and the legal lot on their nice, comfy wool sacks. The Queen might often take part in debates before bills were approved in the Lords, and sat in state at the closing of Parliament to receive the Speaker's oration. But then as now, Parliament had a large element of theatre and of drama, of speeches before and after the nomination of the Speaker, the variety of speeches, delegations from other houses, divisions for votes. And there was a consciousness that MPs were part of a process with deep historical roots with their ancestors. In consultative assemblies of Anglo-Saxon times and medieval assemblies and the Magnum Concilium. Parliament played a vibrant role in state formation, and you might even argue that it was copied in different local forums up and down the country, in councils, wards and parishes, in the stannery courts. In Swallowfield, the parish met together to draw up a set of articles about the rules of how they would govern their community, in what I think I'm right in saying has been described as the monarchical republic of Swallowfield. The articles were there, to the end that we may better and more quietly live together in good love and amity to the praise of God and for the better serving of Her Majesty when we meet together. Which might be used just as well for a well-run and successful meeting of Parliament. The parliamentary session, which took place from the end of September 1566 to January 1567, was in fact an extension of the 1563 Parliament, and it's principally notable for an unusual spat between Queen and Parliament. That is not to say that nothing else was achieved in it. By and large, Elizabeth's parliaments would make bees look idle with the quantity of the bills enacted. In Edward VI's reign, the average parliamentary session produced 93 bills. In Mary's reign, 48. And in Elizabeth's reign, it was 123. These bills were of all kinds, and most of them were uncontentious and not the stuff of the grand forward march of great constitutional issues. Two-fifths of them were private bills, such as the denization of one John Stafford, born beyond the seas. Others were focused on regulatory matters, such as the construction and size of barrels or penal matters such as the prevention of fraudulent gifts in bankrupts. You can see the official reports on British History Online if you wish, a link in the show notes. It is a little bit of a hoot. Seriously, not as much of a hoot as watching a test match or downing a pint alongside a bag of Worcestershire sauce crisps, but it's a little bit of a hoot. A hoot of moderate proportions. A hoot suitable for the English temperament. By and large, Parliament in the 16th century was the transacting of business. As just noted, it acted more rarely as a political forum. And most of the 1566 session went that way. Except for a spectacular spat about the contention of the moment egged on by the arrival of Prince James in Scotland. You guessed it, the Queen's marriage and succession. In 1563, the Commons had tabled a petition which went down like a lead balloon. In 1566, the issue resurfaced and time was allocated for debate in Parliament. A delegation solemnly petitioned the Queen for her to marry and name her successor. Elizabeth tartly replied that she'd already talked about this last time and she'd expected thanks rather than more demands. 
On the succession, she replied again that it was dangerous to make a decision at this time, so, you know, not really. When the response was read out to the House of Commons in St Stephen's Chapel, there was an unhappy silence. And debate started again, and the Queen tried to get them to shush, sending legal advice that once she'd answered the question, no more time should be allocated for such a debate. But Parliament would not be fobbed off. To both Commons and Lords, this was a crucial issue of state. As far as Parliament was concerned, it was a public issue relating to national security. To Elizabeth, it was a private issue. In a very brave and very unusual move, one of the members, Peter Wentworth, challenged the legal advice and claimed that freedom to debate whatever they chose was a parliamentary right, which got Elizabeth proper blazing into right Mardibum mode. She berated the delegation for insolence. She threw a tantrum at court and on the 27th of October banned the Earls of Pembroke and Leicester from her presence chamber. Hands up, those of you who have remembered that the Earl of Leicester and Robert Dudley are one and the same? Gold star if you did. She called the Duke of Norfolk a traitor and publicly embarrassed the Earl of Northampton by quizzing him how come he was getting married while his wife was still alive? And she harangued the Privy Council. It was something of a mega strop. Parliament, though, tried again. It had one more card to play. To try the f to force the Queen to their will by using the subsidy bill. This was not a tactic that was normally used and had only been used in the most exceptional circumstances and there was no way that anyone would be brave enough to say explicitly, look, Queen, you can't have your cash until you put a ring on it, OK? But the subsidy bill contained the words, For the most comfortable assurances and promise by Your Majesty made and declared unto us, that for our weal and surety Your Majesty would marry as soon as God should give you opportunity to accomplish the same, whereof we have received infinite comfort. Now, I think that's called an assumptive close in the selling profession. But the Queen would not be ruled. Despite the same assurances that she'd marry, no one was named and no successor named. In her closing speech, Elizabeth vented a little, saying very pointedly that a prince's good opinion and goodwill ought in good order to have been felt in other sort than in so public a space. She complained of having heard so lip-laboured subjects' mouths. Elizabeth was at a high grump level. She might have been even grumpier had she known fully who was behind all these petitions and the attempt to link the subsidy to the question of mariage. That person was her loyal subject and servant, William Cecil. Cecil was truly conflicted between his dedication to serving the Queen with complete loyalty and his conviction that in this matter she was wrong. But in this case, he worked through other members of Parliament and sat behind the scenes, never appearing as principal, an eminence gris. On this occasion, he managed to avoid banishment. OK, that's all for this week then, folks, although I will leave you with a little more news from Scotland before you go, just to set you up for the next episode. In the early hours of the 10th of February 1567, at a place in Edinburgh called Kirkafield, the night was ripped apart by the sound of a massive explosion, 
followed by the noise of falling debris and stone from a house. A storm had broken that would make the murder of David Rizzio in front of Queen Mary look like afternoon tea with decrusted cucumber sandwiches. You might have heard of it. But if not, fear not, because by the end of the next episode, you will. You will also hear about the biggest rebellion of Elizabeth's realm. That is in two weeks' time, since I seem to have dropped lightly but firmly into a fortnightly schedule for the moment. Until that time, have a fabulous, fabulous life and the very best of luck. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.